Welcome to the Blood Red channel as we bring you the latest bottom line podcast with Dave Powell. The latest episode was recorded prior to Sunday's events at Old Trafford, which saw Liverpool's clash with Manchester United postponed following supporter protests against the Glazer family's ownership. Staying on the theme of the failed European Super League, the latest episode sees Dave catch up with economist and football author Stefan Szymanski to get into the continuing fallout surrounding the Super League. This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to the latest Bottom Line podcast from the Blood Red channel with myself, Dave Powell, business and football writer at the Liverpool Echo. Over the past few weeks, we've covered a wide-ranging number of topics on here, from the Jerry Cardinale and Redbird Capital Investment in Fenway Sports Group to the doomed European Super League plot. So this week's announcement of the annual accounts from Liverpool showed their £46 million loss. The European Super League plan dominated the agenda last week after the failed plot by the biggest 12 clubs in Europe to form their own breakaway competition. Liverpool owners FSG have come under heavy fire for their significant part in the plans. And while John W. Henry's display of contrition last week may have appeased some, the latest misstep could be one too many for some fans. But what does the future of the game look like? And what do the role of the likes of FSG have to play in it? Joining me today to give us insight is someone well-versed in the economics of football, the Stephen J. Galetti Professor of Sport Management at the University of Michigan, Stefan Zamansky, a prolific author on the subject of football finance. Stefan has written books including Money on Football, Soconomics and Winners and Losers, The Business Strategy of Football. Stefan, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dave. Pleasure to be with you. Fantastic. It's uh, yeah, it's been been quite the week um, for football. Um, it, it's probably a week unlike any other, certainly that we've seen in, in, in the, the last couple of decades. And what's been your your take on it um, of what we've seen these past few few days? Well, I, I think two things. So, firstly, um, uh, I should say I wrote an article with Tom Hohen 22 years ago, talking about the inevitability of a European Super League. So, um, I've so have a long term sort of interest in this, and the and the argument then is the argument still today, which is not about the clubs, but about the players. Fans like to see the best players come up against each other. Um, that's the nature of sports, why we like the World Cup and the Olympics, or one of the reasons anyway. And so um, what the Super League was offering was more opportunities for that. And think about, don't think about the clubs, but think about the matchups. Think about, you know, Mbappe versus Kane or Salah versus Messi, or think of any of those kind of matchups. And there are dozens you could think of that would be really exciting. And that would create a global audience. And that's why the the, the bankers, JP Morgan, were willing to put up 3.25 billion euros to bankroll this because they knew they'd get their money back because there's pent-up demand. But the second thing, and um, as someone who's moved to teaching about sports in the United States, I, I can speak to this. It's the complete lack of appreciation amongst Americans of the the significance of the promotion and relegation system, the significance of the pyramid, the significance of entry on sporting merit. And, you know, I, t- I try to explain this to my students here in the US, and frankly, they struggle to get what the big deal is. They sort of say, and they, they're definitely, they're certainly adamant it could never work in the US. And they also think it's it sounds a bit crazy as far as they're concerned. So that the that which is why you know the 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 owners miscalculated so badly because they just 
could not believe that this matters so much to the fans. And yet, obviously, it does. Was this a, a need or a want? Um, I mean, for, for the likes of Real Madrid and Barcelona, it could be argued that it was a need uh, greater than some of the others because we, we've seen the, the, the level of debt. I mean, obviously, in football, having debt's one thing if you're able to service it, but when you are struggling to, to, to meet those kind of obligations and, and payroll con- continues to rise and, and all those other things, was this something for the rest that they kind of just didn't want to be left outside the tent? Um, or was this something that, that the game, those clubs needed? I think this raises a very interesting question. And one of the things, because one of the things that's emerged is it was, although this is seen as an American idea, it's, it seems fairly clear that the, that the the prime mover behind this was Florentino Perez at Real Madrid. And it also seems clear that Italian and uh, Spanish fans um, did not react nearly as negatively as the English fans to this. And that, I think, his does reflect, for example, it, you know, when was AC Milan last in the Champions League? Though many of those, you know, those Italian and Spanish clubs are actually struggling to keep up with the Premier League juggernaut. Um, they're facing severe financial crises. And so in some ways, it was the last chance. Um, Maybe they saw this as the last chance to try and achieve some parity, um, you know, through changing the structure of competition. Whereas for the English clubs, I think it was more about opportunity. It was more about there's a lot of money to be made here. There's a lot of attractive games. And, you know, we can secure our long-term future through this. So they had an incentive to do it, but it wasn't so much fear as opportunity, if you like. Do you think that they underestimated the backlash or they were prepared for a backlash? But, I mean, the the, the, the video apology from, from John Henry um, is, is very much out of character of what we've seen previously, whether it's with the Red Sox or, or Liverpool. Um, he's notoriously camera shy, but this seemed like a... And the very kind of the immediacy of it as well. Um, after, after this was was falling to bits very quickly, um, all pointed to this being something which they weren't expecting. Um, do you think that caught them by surprise, um, or, or is it simply a case of when the broadcasters started to turn their noses up at it? Um, that was when it really became a problem. You know, I, I think, as you say, they were expecting a bash, backlash, but they didn't expect it to be significant. I think their calculation was. Um, very much like the project big picture that Liverpool and Manchester United were responsible for advancing back last September and October, they thought that once the dust settled, they would make a financial offer to the other Premier League clubs and possibly to clubs in the Championship and lower to cover the losses that these clubs are enduring due to covid and that that would buy them off, and that therefore any UEFA threatened sanctions would just would just vanish because UEFA could could threaten to boycott the the twelve or fifteen clubs in the Super League, but they couldn't really threaten to boycott the whole of English football. That just is not credible. Um, and so they they miscalculated. I think they miscalculated how immediate and how intense the the backlash was. Although it's probably worth saying, John Henry does actually have a bit of a track record of apologising. I mean, he's apologised to the Red Sox before for poor performance of the team, and I think he apologised once for the poor performance of the Liverpool team. So he's a little bit different, I think, from the Glazers and uh, Stan Kroenke at Arsenal, who 
have the thickest skins in you know uh, that one can imagine and and clearly um really don't care what anybody else thinks no we, we've seen that i mean the the the, the i mean all, all three of the the us owners who um, were involved in, in in this um super league plan all own uh, American sports franchises. I mean, the Cronky and the Glazers own uh, NFL franchises. I think it's the is it the Raiders and uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, respectively. I think, and obviously the Red Sox for um, for FSG. Um, but while we've seen kind of the Glazers on the pitch celebrating the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers' success um, in the Super Bowl fairly recently, it seems hard to imagine they'd be afforded the same kind of um, kind of welcome relationship on the pitch. Um, should there be success for United, whereas John Henry was obviously he was um, in Madrid to, to witness the Champions League final victory. Um, do you do you do do you think that he, he has been um, burnt more badly um, than the other two as a part of this? Um, because do you think ultimately he he cares what what the fans think, or is it just a, a kind of a false display of contrition? Uh, so, so I should make a, a sort of personal confession here. I've actually met John Henry a couple of times um, uh, and talked about the nature of football. He liked soconomics and he liked the, some of the stuff that I'd written, so he wanted to chat about it. And what I what I took from him is that he 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 is he's a little different in the sense that, I mean, he's a a, a billionaire, uh, you know, many times over. And, and so like the Glazers and like Cranky, he lives in a somewhat isolated world, and uh, which is one reason why I think he underestimated the, 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 um, the, the, the reaction. But he, I, having made his billions in the financial markets, he really has gone into this as a hobby, which I think which is a little bit different from Cranky and the Glazers, I think, where they are really more committed in some ways to, to, to running money-making businesses. John Henry sees this as something where even if he loses all of his money, then um, it's not really going to uh, hurt him that much because he's got plenty of money elsewhere. And I, I was very struck. I was looking back through a, a quote in an article about him written in September, October last year with, again, this Project Big Picture, which, again, was a, uh, a fundamental miscalculation on the part of Liverpool and Manchester United as well. And it, but before it collapsed, the, he, he obviously was, was you know, allowed himself to be interviewed for that article. And, and what he was saying was he was disappointed by the other Premier League owners of the, of the non-outside of the big clubs because of their lack of ambition. And he had this, this quote about them, they're always looking down and not looking up. And it strikes me that's very, very American way of thinking about things. Americans are all about looking up. Forget the past. Forget the history. Let's make let's go out and make something better. That's that's what America. That's the whole sort of American mindset. Whereas I think we in in Europe in Britain tend to be a, a little bit more traditionalist. We actually like to preserve our traditions. We like things going on the way that they have done. Certainly in our sports, and I do think that that highlights difference. So I think his miscalculation was not so much. Um, it wasn't so much about just making money. Not I'm not trying to pretend he doesn't like making money. He obviously does like making money, but. Um, but it was also something, it was more about a miscalculation about what the structure of sports meant, or the structure of football meant to English fans and to, 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 to the country as a whole. And one thing that's striking is, I mean, it wasn't just fans, it was everybody. Could you find 
anybody in the UK to have one positive word to say about this. I think that's kind of what shocked him. Do you think, I mean, you, you touched on it there, you think it may be more of a, of a hobby to him than, than say, Cronky and the Glazers? Um, I mean, Manchester United has effectively been a, a cash machine for, for the Glazer family for um, a considerable amount of time. Um, do, do you think that FSG would be more susceptible to maybe selling the club in that respect, or is this something which just isn't on the agenda and, and the kind of these, you know, John Henry will have a thicker skin than that? Because ultimately, I mean, since they've taken over their £300 million outlay and has grown into a £2 billion business, um, and as that asset continues to appreciate in value, um, if indeed it does post-pandemic, um, surely they, they'd be willing to, to hold on because they'd feel that they'd get more benefit out of it that way. Well, I'd say a couple of things. So, so first, uh, I, it's a few years since I met John Henry, so I don't know where his mind is about this kind of thing now. So, uh, I, you know, I don't have any personal insight into that. But, but I, I think it's also important to bear in mind FSG is not just John Henry, right? So there, there are other people, and, and they will have views about whether they want to stay in it. I suspect it's very. Un, I think it's very, very unlikely in the short term that, that John Henry or FSG would want to sell up. Um, I, it's hard. I mean. This whole, if this Super League thing will blow over to some extent, at least um, uh, in, in due course. Uh, and uh, so they, I think they will probably be, you know, they, 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 their calculation will probably be, well, you know, we'll still have the business going forward. I do think that, um, I do think that if, if John Henry thought he was no longer enjoying it, that it was no longer any fun. I think he'd be much more willing to sell out. I don't think he's so. I don't think he's tied to it. He's not. Again, as you say, you know, the, for the Glazers and Cranky, this is this is just making money hand over fist, and they love doing that. And I'm not sure that that's so true about um, John Henry. And if if he if for example he felt that he couldn't go to you know a Champions League final or uh, you know, because because of fan animosity, I think it, it might get to the stage where where he thought, you know, what what's it what's it worth? But the other thing to say is, it's what as long as these teams continue to be perceived as being of such immense financial value, he would be unlikely to um, to to withdraw as long as these these teams are of such perceived to be of such enormous value in the market. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Just changing tax, Sally, do you think it was, um, this has kind of raised the questions of um, people looking at football in, in a different way, certainly in, in this country maybe. Um, I don't know whether it's, it's a flash in the pan kind of train of thought, but obviously people are coming out now saying football as a whole is almost broken in terms of what we know and what the traditions it was it was kind of based upon um do you think that this will change the way we approach the game or is it only going to ever head in, in kind of one trajectory well one of the things that's always struck me about english football is you know and which i have been studying for 30 years so i so i've been studying 30 years it, it, a, a, a game that has become in that period just immensely successful as a global dominant uh uh powerful um uh, uh football nation if you will so i mean go, again go back 30 years i mean the english the first division as it was was 
by no means the best league in Europe. It was a long way behind Italy, Serie A. It was not as good as Spain or um, Germany. And all of England's best players were going to play abroad after the 1990 World Cup because that's where the money was. Um, it was just after uh, Hillsborough. English stadiums were recognised that there was a fundamental crisis in, in the English game with the quality of the stadiums, the quality of the environments. Hooliganism was rife and, and causing, really turning off people from going to the game. So we, in 30 years, English football has gone from being effectively on its knees to being on top of the world. And yet we moan about this endlessly. We complain and say, oh, it's terrible and it used to be better. And, you know, I remember what English football was like in the 70s and 80s. I've got to tell you, I'm old enough to say I really do not see how it was better back then. Uh, it may have been cheaper, but it was really not an experience to, 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 to savour, in my view, um, even if Liverpool dominated completely in that time. Um, so, you know, in, in uh, I, I think, so is that going to change? Are we going to change our, our perception? Are we we're going to be perpetually unhappy about the nature of football in England? Whatever happens. Um, I think, again, over the years, there have been many, many calls to bring in a regulator who would somebody, somebody who would government appointed person who would have some say and therefore have be able to prevent things like this happening. Um, in in some ways, the government might be tempted to to uh, respond to that at the moment because it would be immensely uh, popular right now to do such a thing. However, I think it's unlikely in the sense that if if you stop to think about it, if a government if we had a government regulator of football, whenever anything went wrong in football, which it always does, it would be the government's fault. So you would be the, the government would be creating a millstone around its neck, which would never go away. So I suspect that actually, for the time, uh, but at least we'll see what this government review leads to. But my feeling is that in the short in the short term, we're not likely to see any fundamental change, largely because English football still is um, on top of the world. While there is a the, the the kind of likes of FSG and the Glazers and Dan Cronky have been behind this. Can you see, um, if not get their way with this, um, something like salary caps being introduced across um, European football as a way to, I mean, because that was one of the, the proposals, wasn't it, through the Super League uh, in order to remain, keep that element of competitiveness between the clubs that would be competing, there would be a, a cap. Um, it would have to be a hard cap, you'd assume, because if it was a, a luxury tax, say, as you have in baseball, then, it'd be quite easy for Chelsea or Manchester City to, to permanently um, pay those kind of fines uh, more so than it would be for brothers like Liverpool, possibly. But can you see um, a salary cap as a way, uh, the future of football or some kind of collective bargaining agreement like we see in the NFL with players? Um, do you think that's something which is a potential to arrive in, in European football? Well, I think if it did, it would be disastrous for European football. And so one of the things that distinguishes um, football in Europe from sports leagues in North America is that effectively the leagues in, in North America are run as a kind of a cartel 
where the leagues manage their, the, the clubs basically agree not to be economic competitors. So they agree, they agree not to be, not to try. And so I, I, I live now um, 50 miles uh, west of Detroit. So my local NFL team is the Detroit Lions. They have been lousy for half a century um, because every season there's no incentive for them to, to win anything. They just are a, a lousy team in the NFL. They wait for the good teams to come to them and provide them with entertainment. And, you know, Detroit Lions fans are permanently disappointed. And that's the sort of thing you get with a salary cap is that you, you diminish the incentive to make an, any effort to try to, to win. And one of the things that's great about English football is that the teams are constantly trying to win. Whatever level they're at, they're trying to go up. Um, now, of course, that, that can also lead to financial crises. But one of the things I never understood about the, the, the fan concerns about financial crises is that um, while it's 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 whilst it's bad news for the people who own the clubs if the club gets into financial difficulties it's not as if the clubs ever disappear the clubs are always revived and often they're revived by the fans themselves who then get to have some say in running their club uh, particularly at the lower levels so within that system i mean I don't really care if rich people lose some money. I mean, it doesn't really bother me as long as they're trying to, as long as they're trying to produce the best possible entertainment for for me in, in through putting money into the, the the clubs, then that's that that's a good thing. Um, so uh, whilst whilst I I do think it's likely that the big clubs will look for more and more financial restraints, all that's going to do is help them make more and more money. And I personally do not want to be part of sanctioning that. I don't. I don't see why we want them to make more money. Um, and yeah, in your money and football book, we spoke about this when we were chatting just before um, the podcast. I mean, one of the the, the themes on, on the front was why um, Kievo and Scunthorpe United will never win the Champions League, and why Real Madrid can't be stopped. Um, at that level of football. I mean, do you think that the drawbridge is, is kind of being pulled up now um, to the rest of those sides who maybe have aspirations of um, joining Liverpool and, and the rest of that? We say big six. I mean, effectively, there's, there's, you could argue it's almost turned into a big eight, I suppose. Um, but do you think that um, before long, we will just have, it will be a complete closed shop and the likes of Everton, who've, who've had considerable spend under Farhad Mashiri to try and bridge that gap in the short term before these reforms of, of 2024 arrive with the Champions League? Do you think um, we're heading to a point whereby it will be a totally closed shop anyway, regardless of the European Super League? Well, my mother was from Scunthorpe. And so when I was a kid growing up in the 60s and 70s, on a Saturday afternoon, you'd always had the radio and listening to the football results. And as a family, we'd sit around and listen to see how Scunthorpe had done. And it was, you know, never great news, to be honest with you. But, I, I you know, all my life I've said, people said, Who, which team do you support? And I've said Scunthorpe United. And so I've seen them throughout the years. And... You know, there there is no golden age of Scunthorpe football. That's, that's there is there is no such thing. You know, we've had um, Ian Botham and Ray Clements, Kevin Keegan. You know, we've got Ray lots Kevin of great Keegan, players, yeah. 
but never never been in um, the, t- uh, the top division. Never happened. Been in the second tier a couple of times, but usually it's just a few years and then, then we go down. And, you know, basically we bounce around between the third and fourth levels, and that's permanent. And yet I still think, you know, one day it could happen. There's no reason to think that it couldn't happen. And that, and that I think, is the nature of the pyramid system in football is that it has always been the case that big clubs have dominated at the top. Um, Liverpool, obviously, in the 60s, 70s and 80s is a, is a great example. Obviously, Manchester United um, since forever, Arsenal, you know, we've seen the same teams dominate time and again. And that's true in every country. If you look in pretty much every football country, um, it's the it's been the same. You know, Real Madrid and Barcelona have dominated the Spanish league since it was founded in the 1930s. It's always been true. Um, so we're not entering really an era of new dominance. We're interested, we're we're continuing the same dominance that's always been present. Maybe it's slight a little statistically, you can find a slight tightening, a slight intensity, but not, I would argue, to the point where you would say it's a fundamental change. Um, and I think for most of us, that's fine. We, you know, we'll the thing about humans is psych, psychologically we are predisposed to be optimistic. So no matter no matter how many, no matter how much statistics tells me Scunthal cannot make it to the Premier League, I still think they could. I still think it could happen. And of course, you know, we do see with Leicester City, Leicester City was bankrupt in 2002 in the uh, League uh, Two in 2000, and, uh, sorry, League One in 2009, and Premier League champions in 2016. It's an extremely rare and unique event, but but nonetheless, it happens to somebody. And, you know, it's the same as buying lottery tickets. People buy lottery tickets. And I want to make a comparison here with the United States as well and baseball. Because if you go back, so in baseball in the United States, there are 30 teams in Major League Baseball. There are a bunch of minor league teams that are almost all controlled by the Major League teams. They use them as they're called farm teams. They're used for player development. They play meaningless games in meaningless leagues, and nobody, almost nobody, goes to watch. Well, people do go to watch, but they don't go to watch the baseball because it's really not interesting and there's no significance. And yet, in the 1920s and 30s, 100 years ago, there were up up to 40 different minor independent minor leagues operating in the United States. And they all vanished. They all failed. Pretty much any town in the United States of any size had a minor league team once, but it's gone. Why is it gone? Well, when TV and radio came along, people could watch better quality sport on and, and, and were, were drawn to that. And that led to a decline in audiences in the minor leagues. And because there was never a system of promotion relegation, there was no hope that things might get better. So when when the team got into difficulty, nobody in the town stood up and said, you know what, we need to save this because one day we could be in Major League Baseball. You could never be in Major League Baseball. So the things just died. And... Um, that's what I think that that actually that and that's what last week was about in my view and that's what what 
what was saved. And that's what people should want to cling on to in our in our football system above all above all else, I think. Absolutely. I'm on board with that as a Chester fan. I hold out the hope that they um that getting back in the football league would be nice as opposed to winning the Premier League. But um <laughs> it will happen. It will happen. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you are the eternal optimist. Um, <laughs> for for the future of, of, of sports ownership, and do you see us um, moving towards kind of the, the North American model of sports ownership, or, or how do you see it playing out over the next ten years? Because we've already had FSG um, last last month state that they are heading into what they describe as FSG 3.0. So it's the, the kind of the third decade of sports ownership for FSG, which looks different in the last decade. And that last decade looked different to the decade before in terms of, because technology advances, different revenue streams come on board, don't they? I mean, where, where do you see the future of sports ownership heading? Well, so probably first to acknowledge that I'm an economist by profession. So whatever I forecast, probably the opposite is going to happen, right? I mean, we're, we're not known for our quality of our forecast. So with that, with that caveat, what, one, thing I would, one, one thing that strikes me is that the thing to watch is the, the, how Major League Soccer in the United States develops relative to the big leagues in, in Europe. So one of the things you might say that that um, uh, you know the Europe is in Europe is in trouble and and its its system doesn't work, but Major League Soccer in the United States is struggling to take off with TV audiences. They have managed to expand the number of teams quite significantly, and they have fairly strong local fan support, although it's it's patchy in a number of places. Um, but it's almost all about people going to the game. It, there's almost nobody watches this stuff on TV. And in fact, you know, the audience in the United States for the Premier League is way bigger than for, um, for Major League Soccer. Now, if Major League Soccer managed to develop and become a, a serious rival to the European leagues, then because it is organized on a closed league basis, then I think you would see... You would see that you would see effects a fundamental shift towards that structure and that style, and you might see, you know, the in fact, you know, Major League Soccer in that way could ultimately become what the Premier League is today, the dominant league in the world. Um, I frankly doubt that that's li a likely scenario. I think I I think Major League Soccer will struggle will continue to struggle to attract interest on on TV in the United States, and I think the European system is is pretty robust. Um, but, you know, nothing is guaranteed. What we saw last week was an attempt to, by very powerful people, to try to dismantle the system. They failed. Um, but the Super League idea and the idea of a closed Super League has been around for a long time. And I'm, I, I, I wouldn't surprise me if it came back, not, not next week, but you know, once the dust has settled enough, once people have forgotten, I think I think there'll be another attempt. Well, Stefan, that seems like a, a perfect uh, note to end our uh, our conversation on. Um, thanks very much for joining us today. That's all we have time for on today's podcast. So a huge thank you to Stefan for for taking the time to join us and share your insights. And I strongly recommend. Um, uh, some of your, some of your reading material, money on football specifically, is what I'm reading at the moment. Copy right here. Um, 
So we'll, we'll have all the analysis over the next few days on the Liverpool Echo um, as to Liverpool's accounts and also the continued fallout from the European Super League proposals. Uh, if you've not signed up to the Blood Red newsletter yet, make sure you do that via the link in the description. But until next time on the Bottom Line podcast, it's goodbye for now and thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.